The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. So we've had a few twists and turns in our fall class with Ajahn Punadamo being here. And then last week I was out of town teaching and Patrice uh, played the talk. And I know about 30 of you were here for that. But I thought we might do small groups again tonight just as a way to end. If you don't, didn't realize, this is our last class. And uh, we did put out the sign-up for the winter class um, out on the table. And it's a little different. We'll do two of the satipatthanas. We'll do mindfulness of mind and mindfulness of mental qualities all in one course. And it will go from, I think, January 11th, Monday, January 11th, to uh, the end of May. I think it's the 21st. I'm sorry, March 21st. (laughs) And so I don't know what that is, 10 or 11 weeks. And we'll have, we'll do both of those, um, finishing up our four foundations in that class. So tonight, finishing up with feeling tone, a lot to talk about. And in particular, getting interested in these two realities. So we have our normal reality, which is our mind being affected by or governed by our conditioned habits to be attracted to pleasant and repulsed by unpleasant and indifferent to neutral experience. That's an ordinary worldly mind. And then, because we've all been practicing, we know, to some degree at least, we know that movement, as mindfulness stabilizes, the mind experiences the taste of liberation. I know it sounds a little dramatic to say it that way, but when there's when the mindfulness is stable, right, we can't actually be clearly aware of an experience and struggling with greed and aversion, right? Because the greed and aversion itself distorts. So it's it's sort of like a paradoxical question. Can you be clearly aware of aversion or clearly aware of greed? It's be nice. I mean take that up as a challenge. In a way, the answer is yes, because the mind is very quick. So we could be immersed in some greed storm or anger storm. And then, because there's some momentum, mindfulness just arises. In the middle of not being mindful, all of a sudden, the mind is mindful. And in that moment, in a sense, there's contact or intimacy with the experience of aversion. But it very quickly changes, doesn't it? As, as long as the mindfulness doesn't get destabilized by the intensity of the anger, the unpleasantness of the anger, or the pleasantness of something, then it transforms. So what is this world of sense experience, pleasant, unpleasant experience, neutral experience, when the mind isn't grasping, when the mind isn't orienting around what's pleasant and unpleasant? isn't personalizing the pleasantness, unpleasantness. What is that world like? So in the small groups, we can talk about just our own experiences of that switch. You know, you might, like some of us, when we're on retreat, you know, and we're 
we smell the smells of the meal and it's our favorite dish, whatever it is. But darn it, because we're practicing, you know, we're sitting there and we, the mind, now it's got some uh, habit energy, some momentum of being mindful. We start paying attention to the, and you know, we hear that some, we say, oh, it's even more delicious when we're mindful. Well, to a degree, right? Because the first part of mindfulness or some aspect of mindfulness is just the ability to show up, right? So in a way, just the beginnings of paying, you know, paying attention with a little bit more continuity, we can delight even more. In the same way, we can be irritated even more. I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody who's been doing a lot of practice, right? Because everything irritates them. <laughs> just, just ask the partners of people who've gone on long retreats and come home, you know? And it's like, they notice everything, right? So if they lose the sort of depth of the practice and all they have is sort of a hypersensitivity, they're not easy to live with. So, um, but if we can, uh, if we can bring the wisdom in, so it's not just sensitivity, but there's wisdom there too, you know, wisdom that understands that whatever it is that's being known, it's lawful, it comes and goes, it's not personal. So some sense of the, what we call the three characteristics, things are changing, they're ephemeral, they're not self. And whenever the mind personalizes, tries to get something, tries to feed off of some experience by pushing it away if it's bad, grabbing if it's good, ignoring it if it's neutral, the mind gets weighed down by that. Its attempt to get something out of sense experience is always stressful. So we see that, and then we can start to see the other alternative, right? what Ajahn Chah calls the reality of non-grasping. This is from the Buddha. This is that one collection that we had the link out for, um, Jnana Ponika Tara's um, collection of discourses about the about Vedana, feeling tone. So this, I forget, it's near the end of that packet of suttas where the Buddha says, pleasant feeling is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, having the nature of wasting, vanishing, fading, and ceasing. The painful feeling and the neutral feeling, too, are impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, having the nature of wasting, vanishing, fading, and ceasing. When a well-taught disciple perceives this, he or she becomes dispassionate toward pleasant feelings, dispassionate toward painful feelings, dispassionate toward neutral feelings. Being dispassionate, One's lust fades away. And with the fading away of lust, one is liberated. When liberated, there comes to this one the knowledge that one is liberated. One now knows birth is exhausted, the holy life has been lived, done is what had to be done. There is no more of this to come. A practitioner whose mind is thus liberated concurs with none and disputes with none. One employs speech commonly used in the world but without misapprehending it. Isn't that nice ending, right? Knows how to act normal in the world, world but doesn't misapprehend 
You know, so when I say, oh, somebody gives me some food or gives somebody some food, oh, that's delicious. But they're not confused by those words. Like, you can still recognize that this is something that's pleasant, but the mind isn't feeding off of the pleasant, isn't dependent on the pleasantness of that food. And there's sort of two things. This is the difference between this worldly and unworldly world. The world of grasping and the world of non-grasping is what is the mind orienting around? So in the world of grasping, the mind orients around pleasant experience and the pleasantness of getting rid of unpleasant experience and not being bothered with neutral experience. That's what it's sort of the governing mechanism of our ordinary world. And in the world of non-grasping, when the mind has a lot of wisdom, or as we imagine the mind of an enlightened being, a wise being, then it's orienting around the happiness, or that word may be problematic, so maybe the release of non-grasping. Right? Release itself is, in sort of Buddhist terms, beyond happiness, or a more refined kind of happiness, the happiness of non-dependence. So that's what the mind, in a sense, delights in, or that's what feeds the mind. Not having a nice meal, a nice interaction, those things may or may not be happening. Nobody's averse to those things happening, right? Somebody still, this wise or enlightened being would still understand the difference between having a nice interaction and an unpleasant interaction with somebody or a nice meal or an unpleasant meal or a comfortable body or an uncomfortable body, they'd be able to go to the doctor and tell them what's going on or have the dentist, you know, go to the dentist and say, yeah, there's a lot of pain. So they'd recognize it, but they'd be, uh, the mind would be orienting toward non-attachment to the feeling tone not personalizing it, not living a life dependent on feeling tone, pushed around by feeling tone. Now, we this is not that far away from us because, as it said, I don't know if any of you read, or maybe we didn't scan um, Venerable Analeo's chapter on feeling tone from his book, Satipatthana. But in there and in, in some of the suttas that we did, that I did send out, um, I lost my point here. Something about the neutrality. I'm going to have to leave it. Maybe I'll find it. (laughs) It's going to read this section. It's just two pages that he has on feeling the neutral feeling. It's interesting, one of the small tidbits here is that, um, and you've probably heard that, well, sometimes we say something's neutral, but it's not actually neutral. I mean, we say something's pleasant or we say something's unpleasant. Like, that's a pleasant sound. We hear somebody playing music. Oh, that's really pleasant. But is the sound pleasant or is the mind, the mind's thought about the sound pleasant? So, not not at the time of the Buddha, but later in the Abhidhamma and the sort of 
systematization of the Buddhist teachings that came in the centuries after the time of the Buddha, it said that only mental activity, thought, and sensation, physical sensation, um, are pleasant and unpleasant. Sound is neutral, and uh, smell and taste is neutral, and things unbelievable. Hmm? And sensation, right? Like you can actually have a sensation that's pleasant and unpleasant, but everything else is neutral. And what makes sound or smell or taste or sight pleasant or unpleasant is what, you know, when we see something, then immediately with that visual form, there's a feeling there's perception, there are all these mental formations that arise. And that stuff, the mental activity that arises in conjunction with a sight, a sound, a taste, or a smell, is what makes it experienced as pleasant or unpleasant. So let me read a little bit of what Venerable Analeo says here in this section on neutral feeling. While pleasant and unpleasant feeling can activate the respective latent tendencies to lust and irritation, neutral feelings can stimulate the latent tendency to ignorance, right? Because we tend not to notice. We tend not to care. Ignorance in regard to neutral feeling is to be unaware of the arising and disappearance of neutral feelings or not to understand the advantage, disadvantage, and escape in relationship in relation to neutral feelings. As the commentaries point out, awareness of neutral feelings is not an easy task and should be best approached by way of inference, right? I can't tell that it's pleasant. I can't tell that it's unpleasant, so I'll call it neutral. And a little later, Venable Analeo says, this is of a particular importance because in actual experience, neutral feeling appears easily to be the most stable of the three types of feeling. Thus, to counteract the tendency to regard it as permanent, its impermanent nature needs to be observed. Contemplated in this way, neutral feeling will lead to the arising of wisdom, thereby thereby counteracting the latent tendency to ignorance. So, pleasant feeling brings in the latent tendency to greed, unpleasant feeling, to aversion, and neutral to ignorance, right? Because there is a sense like, I want to ignore it. I don't think it's relevant. I Basically, we think being disconnected is appropriate, right? Like we're a human being having a life, but because in this moment, the predominant experience is neutral, the conclusion, the deluded mind thinks is, I don't need to be connected to the only thing I have, which is this moment which happens to be neutral. So these are the you know three poisons or the three unwholesome roots of greed, anger, and delusion tied to feeling. As I mentioned the first couple of weeks, how central this feeling is. So in a sutta, the Buddha points out that the difference between neutral feelings associated with ignorance and those associated with wisdom is related to whether such feelings transcend their object. So when we have a deluded mind, neutral feeling is predominantly the result of the bland features of the object. 
So that means most of the time when we're in our normal, superficial, not-so-wise way of being in the world, there's a lot of neutrality, but that neutrality is the neutrality of not paying close attention. So this is one of the things that surprise can surprise meditators as you go on retreat or you sit and have some stillness, that you notice so much, like mostly unpleasant but also pleasant, that normally through your day you're just unaware of, right? But when you sit, it can be really amazing how like somebody's movement is so unpleasant or somebody's sniffling or the temperature of the room or having to do a lot of things. The whole day, for weeks, you're not bothered by it. But you sit down and it's unbearable. Right? We start to notice what we don't normally notice. Conversely, neutral feeling related to the presence of wisdom transcends the object. Right? So the neutrality isn't about the object. He says here, since it results from detachment and equanimity and not from the pleasant or unpleasant features of the object. So this is in the direction or what we mean by unworldly. The unworldly feeling isn't about the object as much as the non-attachment to the object. Right? The letting go of the object. So when we, in your small groups, you can talk about feelings that have arisen not when the mind is attached, feeding off of a particular object, but when it's letting go. What is the feeling of letting go? It's a feeling too. In the last paragraph in this section, according to the same discourse, the established the establishment of such equanimity is the result of a progressive refinement of feelings, during which, at first, the three types of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, related to the life of renunciation are used to go beyond their more worldly and central counterparts. Right. So the first stage, we're sitting, and we're having our normal pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, but now we transform them, as I kind of pointed to in the guided meditation, to the feelings of non-attachment to the pleasant, the feeling of non-attachment to the unpleasant, and the feeling of non-attachment to the neutral. Right. So that's the first stage. You know, When we talk about a practice in terms of feeling tone, we sit down, we're an ordinary human being with an ordinary frame of mind or view, so I'm leaning into the pleasant, I'm getting tight around the unpleasant, and I'm ignoring the neutral. But because I'm stabilizing my mindfulness, and I'm starting again, and I'm cultivating you know, all the qualities that allow my mindfulness to be strong and continuous and wise, then I start having moments where pleasant feeling, instead of triggering grasping, triggers letting go, non-grasping. And uh, unpleasant, instead of triggering aversion, triggers, brings out non-attachment to the unpleasant, and same with neutral. And so then, then what we're feeling is these unworldly feelings. And then the Buddha in that sutta goes on. So we've now 
we're now just feeling unworldly, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So the mind is in the world, but experiencing the feeling of non-attachment to the different sense experiences that are being known. So the feeling is the feeling of non-attachment to what's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then, that's stage one. I'm sorry, stage one is just feeling and reacting to the feeling tone. Stage two, this is stage two. So, and then, um, then stage three is we use, I have it written out here. So then dependent and relying on the six kinds of joys based on letting go, right? So the joy of non-attachment to what's pleasant, we abandon and surmount the six kinds of unpleasantness or grief based on renunciation. So we're letting go of unpleasant, but to stabilize the mind even further, we pay attention to the happiness or the pleasantness of non-attachment to the pleasant. Is this getting confusing? (laughs) I've seen people's eyes wandering a little bit. So we're really talking about how the mind is retreating from getting pushed around by feeling tongue. So the first thing we do is we practice feeling what it's like to not be attached to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So we still are feeling what it's like to not be attached to unpleasant. So we're still, in a sense, affected by the unpleasant. But then the Buddha says, well, pay attention to what it feels like to be not attached to the pleasant, not to the unpleasant, right? So by really paying attention to not being attached to the pleasant, the mind gets free from the unworldly, unpleasant feelings. And then the Buddha says, now pay attention to not being attached to the neutral, because it's a more refined state, right? So by paying attention to... So basically, you're intimate. It just means being intimate with neutral. Because when you're mindful of neutral, you're not attached. It's by definition, right? So first, we're just attached to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Then we're noticing not being attached to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Then we're really tuning in to the not being attached to pleasant, which frees the mind up from whatever reverberation there is from being not attached to unpleasant. Because we've got to work at not being attached to unpleasant. We want to react to it. Right? Have you ever noticed when you're mindful of pain, you've got to be really vigilant. And as soon as you lose a little mindfulness when you're being mindful with pain, it's like really bad, (laughs) right? Because you've got a lot of concentration. The mind is really steady. So as soon as the wisdom goes away, the mindfulness weakens, and all you have is a lot of sensitivity to what your mind now finds unpleasant and wants to get away from, it's really hard to bear. So to sustain that non-attachment to unpleasant is hard work. So we focus on the non-attachment to pleasant, And then when that gets stabilized, we focus on being intimate with neutral. And this is useful in terms of meditation objects. Why, you know, something like mindfulness of the breath is such a useful meditation object because it gets, after a while, it gets very neutral. 
right? And so if we're being really intimate with what's neutral, so we're intimate meaning we're not attached, but yet we're paying attention to it. See, we're overcoming eons and eons of mental conditioning. Like to be intimate with something that's profoundly neutral is just not in the conditioning of this mind. Right? So we you could say we rise above a lot of mental conditioning just by being steady and profoundly intimate with something simple and neutral or hearing, especially when there are no interesting sounds. Like especially in this room where you got the blower mostly. You know, it's like white noise or the seashore, or wind through the trees. You know, initially it's pleasant, but after a while it's just sound. It's neutral. And to sustain a kind of unbroken intimacy really settles the mind. And then it goes even further in the sutta. Maybe I'll just finish it up here quick. So now we're being intimate with non-attachment to neutral. Right, so being intimate with neutral, then dependent and relying on the equanimity, because you have a lot of equanimity, that is unified, abandon equanimity that's diversified. So now we're with what's neutral. There are lots of different neutral experiences, but instead of the mind being impinged by the diversity of all the different neutral sense experiences that we're not attached to, we kind of sum it up into one thing. And the mind has this capacity, you know, in the same way in an orchestra, I could be listening to each instrument and because I'm not classically trained and I'm not that interested in music, it's kind of neutral. It's not an obnoxious piece of classical music for me and it's not some beautiful piece, it's just sound, you know. But I could hear each piece, each instrument, and I could see it's neutral and not be attached but that's a lot of work, just being sensitive to the diversity. But in a way, I could rest back and just hear it as one thing. Same thing with the sound of the blower. You know, if we tried, we could start picking out different aspects of the sound of the blower and just kind of see the neutrality of each and not be attached. But then, so we go from seeing the world as a diverse set of experiences to seeing the moment as just one thing. Because this is a good training to do any time, you know, when your mind is settled, to notice that the present moment isn't multiple objects. It's just this. So then we're paying attention to what's neutral and unified. So we're seeing the present moment as a unified whole, not a set of diverse experiences. So the mind settles down even more. There's one more. Dependent on non-identification, abandon, surmount the equanimity that is unified. Right. So now there's still the experience of a there's a sense of a me being with this unified, neutral experience with non-attachment. And now we take away the identification. We abandon the identification. So this is, this brings the mind, you know how we say often how a state of concentration really relates to the flavor of freedom. Because to get to a really sublime, peaceful state, 
the mind has to abandon the ways, all the ways it's being impinged upon by ordinary reality. Now with concentration practice, we're using attention to retreat, right? So in this case, it's such a beautiful example of dependent on what we pay attention to. The mind is retreating from its normal mode of being impinged or pushed around or weighed down by our ordinary experience of attention being dependent on what is experienced or the mind being dependent on what's experienced. And we can step away from that. And the more we do that, the more the mind really understands the cause for suffering and the way out. Because all the way along that training, we'll get pulled back in because of habit energy. Some, some sound will come in and the mind will meet that sound with an ordinary mind. Why is that person making that sound? Don't they know we're sitting? And there will be aversion in the mind. And then in contrast to experiencing the non-attachment of, greed, uh, of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, the, that moment of aversion to what's unpleasant really stands out uh, as being weightful, psychically weightful, like, oh, what a burden it is to have that, you know, impingement. I'll just, did I read the letter that Gregory Kramer wrote about his son's cancer a couple of weeks ago? I meant to, and I, I don't think I did. Anybody recognize it? Some of you know Gregory Kramer. He's relatively well-known in the Insight Meditation Circles, a long-time teacher, and he teaches Insight Dialogues and written a nice book about that. And he taught at Common Ground once, but he's been teaching around the country for a long time, lives in Portland. And you can see, I think his, he got lucky and got the uh, the domain name meta.org, I think is his website. So you can check it out, and there's some nice information about this Insight Dialogue. But in the middle of his busy teaching schedule, a number of years ago, uh, his son got cancer, a young adult. His son was a young adult. And this is what he wrote, which is a really good example, and then we'll break into small groups, of um, of this, um, of him in this very intense world, exp- worldly experience, talking about this non-attachment to feeling tone. So he starts by describing his son. He has Stage four lymphoma, but evidently it's, and I think he survived. Um, So he says, for those who may be wondering if I can offer good news, that a lifetime dedicated to the principles and practices taught by the Buddha truly does prepare one for such things. I have been living at the edge of, at the edge between the searing pain associated with deep caring and the clarity of not proliferating into the second arrow of grasping. Sometimes I'm at the precipice, where the mind's imaginings and heart's anticipations want to suck me into fear and grief. But with the support of mindfulness, I dwell in the intimate moments made possible by non-denial and non-proliferation, not backing away and not grasping. There is the truth of suffering and there is awareness. 
the edge that reveals the shared human experience. Sometimes I touch into a moist and fetid anguish, especially when I'm worn out. But an awareness bigger than even this suffuses my mind within a few seconds. Following those moments, I know I am closer to the pain of the world. This is the predicament and opportunity we share. Funny that my biggest lesson from such personal suffering would be a deeper vision of the universality of suffering. He finishes it up with some other stuff. And this could be an invitation for us in our small groups tonight too to you know, to talk about, especially recent experiences of real highs, a lot of joy, a lot of goodness, success arising in your life, and how, at least in moments, you experienced it with non-attachment. And what, just that, the coolness, like, of all this good stuff happening, but nobody, no heart, no mind, feeling pushed around by how good it is, how wonderful it is. Right? Or experiences of real difficulty. But having moments of real coolness, real stillness, real peace in the midst of a lot of confusion, a lot of difficulty, a lot of uncertainty, or a lot of fear even. But the mind in that moment or those moments, not at all pushed around by it, not at all feeling burdened by it. And it can be even surprising that, like the mind initially might be a little mistrustful. Am I just deluded? This is going on in my life, you know. And, but, you know, in this business, we learn to trust. I mean, it's, it's a, a process, but we're training ourselves to trust the way it is, not the way we think it should be. And it's hard, you know, because we, maybe because we're social beings, we take our cues from the sort of social environment, which includes our stories that we have about how how we think it should be. I'm getting old. This should be difficult. Well, maybe it's not difficult in this moment or even, even, even in many moments. Or... I'm really poor, or I don't know what's going to happen. But how is it actually? How does it feel right now? Because if there's not attachment, it might be one of those unworldly feelings. So we'll break into small groups. Mm-hmm. But remember, Anne, you're not supposed to parse it out. You're just being intimate. So when you're intimate, if you notice the mind is retreating or it has the impulse to retreat, that's what you're noticing, just that. You don't have to say that's unpleasant. Or if you notice a leaning, energetic leaning forward or a delighting in or wanting it to last, you're noticing that feeling of that, right? So you're just get, we're just learning to get close. Because I think you're right. If, if you're busy trying to decide what it is, it's, it becomes artificial or maybe even unhelpful. So don't try to decide what it is. Just be close to the feeling tone. That's what we've been talking about tonight. 
Yeah, that's the unworldliness of it. Right? When you shift from being with an ordinary mind, where you're just kind of grabbing what's pleasant and pushing away what's unpleasant, but then when the mindfulness is stronger, then it's not based, the feeling tone isn't based on the object, it's based on the knowing, the non-attachment. Right? That's the feeling tone of the non-attachment is what dominates the mind. Not that what the mind is not attached to is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Yeah, so I think that's what you're pointing to. And that's why that shift is really important to acknowledge in our experience. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.